Welcome back to another episode of Edge of the Couch. But before we begin, we'd love to highlight our sponsor, Jane, an all-in-one practice management software. The team at Jane recognizes how much of a compassionate ally you are to your clients, and they work hard to be the same for you. From day one, you can expect unlimited customer support, thorough onboarding that sets you up for success, and a 99.99% software reliability that ensures Jane is always ready to start the day with you. Just as you are always learning and improving, Jane is too. The team at Jane values customer feedback and uses it to design even more helpful features. So you can think of Jane as a software that grows with you, which is something that both Jordan and I have experienced having been with Jane for so many years. Yeah, there's a feature where you can give them ideas for new features and you can upvote them and put little comments. Then we've seen some of these features get introduced to the platform. It really does feel like Jane is listening. If you're ready to start your Jane journey, you can head to jane.app slash start and use the code edgecouch1mo, edgecouch1mo at sign up for a one month grace period applied to your new Jane account. And now on to the episode. Welcome to season five of Edge of the Couch. We are here to create a space to delve into the topics that were either shied away from or dismissed because they were too big, too nuanced, too risky, or too uncomfortable to talk about in school or even supervision. Edge of the Couch is not training or supervision. It is for student therapists, new therapists, and therapists wanting to continue to explore their evolving therapist identities and ways of working. When we are talking about clients, please know we are deeply committed to protecting client confidentiality. We are too passionate therapists and good friends sharing our personal opinions about the therapeutic process. Come join us at the edge of the couch. Welcome back to Edge of the Couch. I'm Jordan Piquel. And I'm Allison McCleary. And today we have a Q&A episode for you. It's actually a live recording. So yes. we have folks in our Zoom room who will be asking questions. We have a few questions from Patreon and we don't know what they are yet. First time we've ever done anything like this. We've been wanting to do it for a long time um, because we always love opportunity to actually chat with listeners and like have back and forth with them. We do have a couple of questions that were asked on Patreon that we want to prioritize starting with. So maybe we'll um, we'll just start there. Okay. So we have, should we say their name? Probably not. Okay. Okay. We have a listener. If you are listening, you know who you are from <laughs> Patreon who says, hi, Jordan and Allison. I'd love if you could speak to how you approach clients who are desperate for a solution, quote unquote, to how they feel, but do not resonate with any tools. Yeah. Let's start with that one. Okay. Yeah. So clients who are desperate for solutions, but then um, don't like any of the tools that you present. What What would you do with that, Jordan? When I think about clients who want solutions about, I don't want to feel this way. So like grief. So Anxious, we just did that episode yeah. about grief. Anxiety. And where there's not a solution. I mean, there's tools for anxiety, for some of these um, anger, anxiety, and that's more for management. But folks who say like, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't work for me. That doesn't work for me. I I might say something like, these tools do work for myself. If I'm talking about anxiety for myself, they seem kind of kooky or kind of flimsy and they don't feel like they would help. But in my own experience and seeing like professionally, but also personally, I see that these tools work. We just need to figure out which ones work for you and you have to practice. You have to try them out. Sometimes you have to layer them up on top of each other or 
you know, it's not a magic wand. It won't immediately take your anxiety away, but it will support you in managing the anxiety. So a little bit of psychoeducation. Then I usually go into process. Yeah. That, that's why going to process is so valuable because if someone is asking for solutions and then doesn't mm-hmm. want to implement any of the like evidence-based solutions that you are bringing to the table, then to me, it's like, oh, this is not even, that's not even the work. The work is um, what's going on here that you're batting away all of my suggestions that um, you're saying that you really want this to change and that I'm kind of offering you one way to tr- at least try and you don't want to try it. Um, to me, that's like, that's a bigger clinical piece that's worth exploring. Yeah. there. I mean, there are other routes I might take depending on the person, right? So it might be something like, I'm hearing that there's a lot of suffering here. Mm. And I know yeah. that there's this like desperation that I'm yeah. hearing that mm. you really want to not be suffering anymore. And I completely get that. Or I might say something like, I feel like we're bumping up against the limitations of therapy. Like these things aren't problems to be solved. Like if it's a decision to make, it's like, um, you know, I can't tell you. If it were me, maybe I could tell you, but this is your, your life. I, you know, yourself best and yeah, there are limitations to my role and I'm trying to figure out how I can best support you. I think a trap. What does it feel like to not have a solution? How is that? Right. That's a great question. I think too that I would, um, I think an easy trap to fall into with clients who are telling you how badly they want tools, but then are telling you that none of the tools are working is that it's very easy to just keep trying tools. Like, okay, well, let's try this. Mm -hmm. And I would like, if you have someone, you've offered them three different things to practice. They're, this is different than the ones who are taking it away, practicing it and finding it ineffective versus people who are doing that batting away. I would immediately stop offering tools um, because I think it's a really easy trap to fall into of like, okay, well, let's try this and this and this and this and this. When I think that piece of like, what is it like that this isn't working or what is it like that there isn't anything we can do right now is much more valuable um, and that there, there might be a relationship conversation there of like, I think until we figure out what's going on here, it's not going to be helpful for me to just keep offering you like handouts and new uh options for how to do this because we're just looping, constant looping. We've had someone in the chat put up that for them, too many tools can also be overwhelming and confusing. And I wonder for the person who wrote this, do you mean as the client? Do you mean as the the therapist as well? Because I do think the overwhelm feeling can happen in both for both people. Yeah. As a client, for sure. For yeah. sure. It's like- And it can be annoying where it's like, there isn't a solution. And I just want to talk about how this is, uh, you know, I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to say sucks. I'm like trying to uh, <laughs> use different language. For new therapists, I think it's easy to get stuck into like, oh, what kind of tool should I bring up? And like searching Google between yes. now and this, the next session or like yes. asking people, what are tools that you use for when somebody is in this place? And I think anytime we get in that, that place, that it's, notice and slow down Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we aren't going to show up in the way that we need to show up if we feel like i don't know if we're trying to prove our worth or if we're uncomfortable with where they're at like maybe there's this underlying thing is if i don't offer the right tool then maybe i'm worthless as a therapist 
Well, sure. I mean, I think when a client is telling you that nothing you're doing is working, that's a really hard thing to hear as a seasoned therapist, but especially as a new therapist. Like, it's not working. Ah, spiral, fear, right? So I think we own what is ours, and then we also allow the client to own what is theirs, that sometimes some clients, it doesn't matter the tool you give them. They're telling you they want a solution, but actually what they need is just to be heard and like, They need someone to see how sorrowful they are and they need someone to just tell them that they can sit there instead of like, how are we going to get rid of this? Um, Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what you offer. You could offer them the perfect tool that works for 100% of people, but that's actually not what they need. Yeah. I'm also thinking about how what what the power dynamic looks like in that Mm -hmm. moment, because Mm -hmm. I think that it can be the situation of either positioning the therapist as the expert and it's like you tell me how to do this sure or it can be like this i mean it's not this way but it's not the opposite but there is this kind of like criticizing the therapist to make them smaller so i think it's interesting to uh to imagine the underlying power dynamics and what we really want to do is like let's figure this out together let's sit in the totally together and try to find solutions that it's not easy but let's like, look at this. Let's slow down and let's look at what's going on here. Yeah. It dovetails a bit into the, the second question. Um, we have a question here from Jen and we'll, um, we'll loop back. But the question that another question that we got on Patreon w- was, how do you help clients sit in hard emotions? Which like, I, I love that this is asked because we talk about it all the time. We're like, sit in it. Da, da, da. But it's like, what does that actually look like? So right. um, Jordan, how do you help clients sit in hard emotions? I would say I slow down and we've talked about this before where you might say what the emotion is Mm. or say like what something like, how is this feeling right now? So do you hear my language is present tense? Yes. yes, yes. Notice what's coming up right now. Um, I might even ask, how are you feeling if they seem like a little bit distant from me? But it's an interesting thing because again, for I think for new therapists, it can be like, let me just leave like when we talk about silences, it doesn't mean like sitting back and just being like, but it can your emotion. It can be, it can. <laughs> but I think that it's a, it's like a pregnant silence yes. for, you know, it's like, there's so much in that silence that's being conveyed and felt rather than like, oh, I'm going to, you know how I get them to feel their emotions. I just don't say anything. Yeah. Right. It has to be intentional. There has to be deliberateness in it. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? How do you do that? Well, the way that, I, I would only do that kind of pregnant pause if I felt the client was actually connected to a feeling. Like if mm-hmm. you're asking, how are you feeling? And they say, fine, I'm not just going to like stare at them and wait. If they if I see tears that come to eyes or I see anger or something or they're saying, I feel really angry. Uh, if I see the wheels turning, I'm going to sit and just mm-hmm. let... I, sometimes I'll even say... Yes, to, yes, yes. Right? Yeah. And sometimes I'll even say to mm-hmm. clients when we've just had a big moment, like let's just stay here for a tiny bit longer mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. we can kind of come up for air. But I wonder if we can just sit with like, oh, this brought up the tears or that was hard. That was really big to say. And even if it's only, you know, 15 more seconds that that's expanding the tolerance for how long we can be, how long the client can be with the vulnerable feeling. For some clients doing the exact same thing that you would with another client shuts their emotions down yeah so so i think it's so interesting you get Mm -hmm. to know the person like what allows them to feel their emotions and what shuts them down so for some 
clients, you say, let's sit with this for a little bit longer. And they really do. You can see them like exhale and Mm -hmm. be in the place. And some Mm -hmm. of them just like immediately start into something else. Like it feels too intense. So yes, it it's sometimes I ask what I think is a very good question, bringing them deeper and it just pops them right out. So (laughs) I I don't think that there's one right question, but there is timing is huge with this. Pacing. And honestly, sometimes it's just like one more beat before asking the question. Um, You might ask how they're, what they notice in their body, especially if there's someone who doesn't name emotions very much, but you you can tell that they're having a feeling. You might say, where do you feel that in your body? And you might say eventually, like the reason why I ask you is because you're somebody who has a harder time labeling your emotions. Emotions on the most basic level are body sensations. Yes. So we're just getting to know what your body sensations are when you talk about this, what body sensation is coming up, this feeling in my throat, which might tell us sadness, like usually it's sadness, could be anger, something needs to be said. Um, You can kind of look at symbolically too, but there's the analyzing about the emotion and then there's feeling the emotion and then there's labeling the emotion labeling the the emotion doesn't necessarily mean feeling the emotion a lot of the time that's that's true about therapists therapists are pretty good at naming our emotions but we're not so good at actually feeling them sure how do we get clients to feel their emotions giving them space Mm -hmm. asking and saying the right things which is not a very helpful piece of um, just get it right to tell what you do listeners yeah. yeah you just do the right thing i'm trying to put myself in the position of a new therapist listening mm-hmm. to this and going like okay how do i get my client to feel emotions slow down slow down that that's a big one like stop asking so many questions and also notice how you're feeling so this is mm-hmm. where like it's something i'll do ouch ouch mm-hmm. and i'll like put my mm-hmm. hand on my heart or oh anger or like whatever and that's yeah. not a question ow it hurts to hear you mm-hmm. tell that story and again a client can come there with you for a microsecond and that's still sitting in it it's sitting in it mm-hmm. is not like 45 minutes of crying straight necessarily for some clients it is a touch a touching of the tenderness and then pulling away and that's more than they've been doing how do we take somebody who's not in their feelings to get further in their feelings? And how do we take mm-hmm. somebody who is like having a glimpse of feelings deeper or to feel it longer, right? Because you yeah. will also see clients will touch into a feeling and it's like, oh, let's stay there. Let's stay there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then other clients who are talking, telling a story that's a very emotional story, but they don't feel the emotions. Then it's like, how how is it to talk about this right now? And then all yeah. of a sudden, that's what that brings up the emotion. Great question. Maybe we should do the next on? one yeah. more Patreon question and then we'll be able to actually um, hop on to the people who are here with us. Uh, so do you, you want to read it? Sure. What are your approaches when working with clients on building self-esteem? That's also a great question. Allison? See, it's so funny because I feel like self-esteem is one of those things that I'm not intentionally targeting with very many of my clients. Like maybe youth clients, that preteen age, it's easier to do like, oh, um, self-esteem building exercises. With most adults, I'm probably not going to do those same things. So for me, um, self-esteem happens through embodiment. Self-esteem happens through telling someone your story and having them still care for you, right? Like that shame, that sh- when shame is met with sunlight stuff. Um, and then I think sharing how I experience my client is a huge piece of the self-esteem. So like, I th- these are the things that I like about you. Um, 
and that that's like weaved through the work that I do with them. I think something you've been saying a lot lately, Jordan, that I love, which is like delighting in the client, delighting in the work with them, delighting in our relationship with them. To me, that's inherently self-esteem boosting because it's someone being like, I love spending time with you. I think you're great. Mm -hmm without being like, name three things that you like about yourself, mm-hmm. uh, which I do, but not often. I did that a lot when I was new. Me too. Like, that was one of my, <laughs> my go-to all the time. Me too. And that can backfire because often people cannot come up with three. Oh, it can backfire so hard. It or can, it'll be like the same yeah. thing phrased different ways. <laughs> self-esteem, that language self-esteem is not used as much now. Mm. Self-worth. Yeah, interesting. Or self-love. But self-esteem to me is sense of self-confidence. In that case, I think you're right, Allison. There's something about talking to someone and pulling out their strengths. And so many of these need to be authentic. I genuinely do delight in clients, but I think that some therapists might take on this like, hi. Every time they see a client, they're like, okay, like it needs to, again, the scaffolding, Mm -hmm. it can't be so different than the way that they're showing up. So it is like, I genuinely am happy to see you and I like you. And you show that in the way you speak, in the way that you talk and you, I think, draw out strengths and consistently, especially if they're different than how they're talking about themselves. Yeah. They talk about themselves this way. It's just like, I do not see you that way. And so I'm feeling a bit confused because I see you as actually this way. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can be that mirror to clients. This is more accurate. And if we're taking a narrative therapy approach where there's, let's say, multiple truths, how do we make that story of them being a likable person, likable, beautiful, smart, all of those things? Um, People want to be their friends. How do we pull out instances of that and make Mm -hmm. that the story because often if you look for it there will be experiences um where that's true for them and so how do we let them see that let help them see that truth right this is a great way that the relationship in therapy is such a microcosm because it's like i'm not your friend but when i hear you talk about your friends i hear care and that tells me Mm -hmm. you're a friend who really cares about their friends you know that there's these interesting Pieces and I love that we're naming like the last thing you want to do because I think people who have challenges with self-esteem to begin with are going to smell bullshit. So if you're like, I think you're funny, I think you're da-da, and you don't think those things, um, I don't think that's helpful. It's like, actually, what is it like when I sit with this person? What do I see in them that I see as strengths? And that might be something to kind of just be like logging away in your mind as you do the work with the client so that when you have opportunity to share your experience of them, you are kind of locked and loaded with some some actual legitimate feelings of what it's like to be with them. I'm also thinking about this concept of self-esteem. When I say people don't do that anymore, I guess I'm also just talking about me personally as a therapist. I think early on, that would be like a goal, increase this person's self-esteem. Like that was something that I wrote in a lot of people's treatment plans. Yeah. And that's not something in my current work that you address directly, like you're saying, Allison, that it's something that is about, you know, talking about their story, about what they want in life, about what's important to them, mm-hmm. and that self-esteem is sort of a byproduct of that. Yeah. And when I'm pulling out strengths, it's not like you talk about how you have lack of self-confidence. And then I say, well, I see this, 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 and this 
to you. It might be like that, but not often. It'll be more like at the end of session or if they're they're talking about um, unf- something that's unfair, somebody was treated unfairly, then I might say like, oh, I really appreciate this about you. Yes. That, uh, like I'm impressed by this, that you're the type of person that really cares about other people and wants, you know, wants to be inclusive or whatever that it, whatever it is. And that can be really moving yeah. because you're seeing the person as they are. It's not like totally. these, oh, I'm trying Bluff. to pull on your strengths. It's like it happens and I say it as I see it. Yes. Which I think is so powerful. Yeah. We have a Should question to, from yeah. someone who's here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's go for it. So how do you approach clients who engage in online counseling but lack privacy around them? This is a great question. For example, people are coming in and out of their room and they're unbothered by it. Does it affect how you are present? This is like such an interesting. This is a great question because it's it's happening, right? We're doing therapy in this new way that we didn't mm-hmm. have to worry about confidentiality when we're in our office with a client, but here we are and they're in their bedroom and someone's coming in to fold laundry. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you manage these moments, Jordan? First of all, it's so surprising to me because I would never, and I, it's not, I'm not keeping any secrets from my partner, but I would never want my partner in the room ever. No, I I need privacy to be able to speak openly and feel openly. Yeah. So that you're right. That's always just an interesting thing to take note of, of like, what is it about? I mean, it's not good or bad. It's just, I think that it's unique to some people that, and they'll just be like, Oh, I'm in my therapy session. Like they interrupt and it'll be like, oh, I'm in my therapy session. Sometimes someone will interrupt and it'll be like, you know, oh no. Yeah, like awkward. Quiet. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But for folks who are un, maybe we can talk about people who lack privacy and then some who that's a problem and then some people who are unbothered by it. Where do you want to start then? Well, maybe we start with their example, people who are unbothered. Yeah, I think whenever we bump into people who are really unbothered by um, their their therapy session being private, and it certainly happens most online, but I remember clients being like, oh, why don't we meet at like a coffee shop? Me being like, no, we can't do sessions in a coffee shop. There is something, I think I've said this in other episodes, but Lord knows what I've said before. Adherence to confidentiality or the anonymity of therapy or whatever we're saying, we are also responsible for that. Like we are ultimately responsible for that. And so sometimes I, and I hate infantilizing clients. And sometimes I do think we have to um, be thoughtful where our clients just aren't thinking about those things if they don't care. And a lot of clients will say, but I just like genuinely don't care. But ultimately I do think we have to have a conversation with them about how it's privacy for both of us, that the therapy is theirs, but the relationship is a shared commitment. And so I don't feel comfortable um, with having a session in a, a coffee shop and I don't feel comfortable with your partner coming in another room as the therapist. So I think we have to have a conversation with someone. I mean, if it happens one time and they're unbothered, whatever, but if it's a consistent thing, like they're doing it in their living room and people are walking around or their bedroom and their partner is coming in and out um, that I would say, hey, this is actually, um, we have to come up with a a way together that we can both feel equally safe, that I can Mm. speak and know that you're the only person listening, I think is also should be a part of our sessions. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
I have never had that conversation. Mine's usually something like, oh, you know, is this a good time? Is this a good time to be in therapy right now? Because it seems like there's a lot going on. Something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. And I'll say at the end of the session, like, oh, there was, I, I know that there was a lot going on there. And hopefully next time you can be in a place where there's less, you know, less distraction or less stuff going on. Yeah. Um, less people going in and out. But I also, I've had clients do therapy, you know, switch to phone counseling and be walking, walking their dog, walking through the neighborhood, hiking, that sort of thing. And so that is not private for them. And we talk about that, but it's also more accessible. And some people like to move when they're in therapy. But to me, that's different than being in a coffee shop. I feel like like at a coffee shop, people can hear you. And it's also just not socially appropriate to the other people. Totally. Yeah. You're on a hike. Someone's going to hear a snippet of a sentence, but you're Mm -hmm. in a coffee shop. People are going to presumably hear a 50 minute session potentially. Mm -hmm. And they might also hear me, right? Like this is the other thing. Like, does it affect how you're present? I would want to say no, but I think that um, presence is like cultivated by knowing that information, the landscape. Like if there's a partner sitting behind the screen that I can't see, or I think maybe is there. My presence is just like not as readily given. I don't know what that is. There's something around like I want to consent to to whatever is going on. Yeah. Well, you're being yeah. surveilled. Well, sure. I think about in practicum, there was mm. one of our classmates had, you know, some people had two way mirrors or there would be like the supervisor Video. sitting behind the client or behind the, oh, the my God. student counselor. Like, I really watching. hate that. I hate that. And it's awkward enough recording the session, but to have <laughs> yes. someone live watching you do therapy, you're going yeah. to do things differently. You're going to, it's going to be harder to speak. For me, it's like my language turns off and I can't access what I am even the present moment because I'm being evaluated. And so if I prefer people to have headphones when they're yes, doing therapy, me too. So me too. people, so that my voice isn't just ringing out through their home. But if somebody was in a public place without headphones, yeah, I would have to have a conversation with that. That's never happened to me. People have been yeah, me outside with headphones but on with and even people, that felt with, uh, that felt uncomfortable, mm. but often it'll be me sort of having that side oh i hope next time that you'll be able to be in a more private place right. because it limited how deep we're able to go yeah practical observations can be we've had someone say i just finished a practical observation so cringe and they are they are they feel <laughs> so horrible um i think uh, there's also something here around when it's an evaluator in the room like that feels awful but if it's like this hasn't necessarily happened, but I've wondered if it has where if someone is like doing therapy and it feels like their partner always has to be in the room, that to me then becomes the clinical piece. Are you allowed to have privacy? If your children are always coming in the room, how often are you alone? How often do you get space by yourself? Um, I think then that it becomes this other piece too of like, and unbothered is so interesting because I think some people just get used to what is like kind of, um, unhealthy for lack of better phrasing. So then they're like, it's fine. Yeah, I guess it is. But you're also allowed to have it where your partner isn't there and your kids aren't coming in, that that should be also permitted. People with kids in the room, it can be a conversation about a larger dynamic that's happening. So your partner's home, they're working and you're in therapy and you're the one watching the kids. 
Mm-hmm. To me, there's something around a uh, division of labor that can come up. And yeah. so I'll notice, I'll say something like, oh, I noticed that you have the kids here. Is it, you know, what's going on with the childcare situation? Because it's, I, I can hear that you're having to take care of kids and do therapy at the same time. That's, yeah. I can imagine that that's really difficult to do. I've had a baby on my lap in sessions before. I mean, my own baby while I'm a client. <laughs> yes. And it is distracting. It's really hard to be present. I mean, totally. I, again, I want it to be accessible, but I think that there can be this, like we're kind of assessing, oh, this person doesn't have the support that they can even take an hour, 50 minutes to I themselves, know. that their partner can't take the kids for 50 minutes from so that they can support their mental health. Like, yeah, that's a problem. Tricky. Or they're, they don't feel like they can speak openly, even though they're in their bedroom it's they're like whispering like this because if somebody heard them it would be bad a big deal yeah that mm-hmm. the my parents don't know that i'm in therapy so i'm gonna speak really quietly yikes hey yeah i used yeah. to allow oh knives i used to allow when i was doing in person for people to bring children under two to session and i had to stop doing it because um it was way too distracting a, a sleeping baby is one thing an infant is one thing, but if you have a kid that is playing with toys and um, it just, and it was predominantly moms who brought their kids, they just couldn't, it was way too hard. It was too hard to do the split brain thing. Actually like 15 minutes of quality conversation and 35 minutes of mm-hmm. like, oh no, oh shoot. Oh, whoops. Oh, uh, you know, I got to get snacks. Mm-hmm. And like so many parents would say to me, like, I don't want to cry in front of my kids, but I really need to talk to you about this thing. And I'm like, okay, well, that's really hard. Or they're to do. pouring their heart out and they're like, you really want to talk about this in front of your kids? Uh, uh, yeah. It's not hard. to be judgmental, but it's just like, because it's I hard. do that too with my own kids. It's like, oh, w- baby ears are listening. So, yeah. Um, gotta be thoughtful. Kind of gotta be boundaries around that because they really do soak in everything. Swerb, yeah. Um, but those folks that feel, you know, somebody comes in and they're like, ah, <laughs> uh, what do you think about that? That has happened too. I had a student one time. Yeah, like they turned off their own camera, the cl- the um, student who was a, a therapist. And I thought that was really interesting so that the client didn't have to explain who she was. I, I was like, that's really smart and like quick thinking. I would never w- like respond that quickly. <laughs> Just, um, But that's a little, that again, I think I get really curious about. I always feel a level of like un- discomfort for my client when they're doing the whispering thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm always like, oh God, what if they are hearing this? And what if mm-hmm. this goes bad for you? And what if this then you're reprimanded in some way, uh, abused? What if this gets thrown in your face? Like that's always really scary for me. It hasn't happened to me. It's actually happened to me a lot less often than the people who are just like, oh, my that's people true. are in the room. And I'm like, mm-hmm. get get them out of there. Yeah. Um, yeah. but it has certainly happened. Yeah, it's happened and people, they kind of get back on track, but they will be like, I can't believe they came in, whether it's, I told them that I had uh, this thing, whether I told them that it was therapy or not, I told them not to come in and then they came in and now that becomes the tricky, um, the conversation. But I also have a lot of clients who talk to me from their workplaces where they reserve a staff room or something like a board so room like, yes yeah, a boardroom so there's the giant table and it's like very cold walls and then mm. they're doing therapy i just can't imagine leaving my desk 
and going to do therapy in a room yeah. and then returning back to my desk. Totally. Actually, a lot of people do it that way. Totally. And to me, that feels more risky that your employer is going to hear your therapy mm. session. And especially if you're talking about your job. Yeah. Well, and I've had that happen where someone is literally talking about somebody and then they walk in the room and the client's like, I didn't know they were home. I didn't know they were here. You were just telling me. Usually a partner will happen. Yeah. A partner partner. or a parent, their parent. And it's just like, I like crying, crying, you know, he doesn't show up for me in this way. And it's like, I'm I'm in my therapy session. Uh, It's all this stuff that you just don't have to navigate when you're in person. I mean, there's other stuff. Like, people will yes. still interrupt, like, male person. Oh, see, I lock that outer door. Locked. I don't know. They Nobody's, find their way in. Nobody's coming in. That's but happened yeah. to me a few times. Yeah. Interesting. Or, I thought I had a session. No. And why would you open the door? <laughs> but, yeah, if they have their own stuff. Um, I know that there are a lot of therapy offices on Broadway here in mm-hmm. Vancouver right now. Yes. And there's so much construction going on there so all these therapy offices all these therapists are having to work with construction outside and often clients don't care they yeah, are, that wouldn't they bother me would that bother unbothered? you construction yeah. yes oh okay as a client you mean no like as a in client, general. it doesn't bother me but as oh. a therapist yeah it bothers me because of the noise yeah oh that wouldn't even phase me really no i I mean, there's construction right across from my place right now. And sometimes I mute. Like, it's so bad that I'm muting when they're talking. And yeah, it's awful. But Interesting the things They that seem unfazed. Yeah. So yeah, totally. it's more of a me thing. That was a great question. Thank you for the sharer, the, the asker. Are there any other questions for the people who are here? We do have a kind of backlog of questions that people have sent us already. But if you have another burning question, feel free to either unmute yourself and say it or um, write it in the chat. Someone just wrote that as a client, they can't hear the noise that therapists hear, such as Jordan touching her mic, which right. Jordan was worried earlier that we could hear and we couldn't we yeah. couldn't hear it. So it I is funny, so. the stuff that, no, we can't hear it. Um, but well, it is, I know, but well, it's not happening right now, but because it's Sunday, but when it's like oh. metal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh. So stressful. And like just like workers yelling at each other. Yeah. Like hollering for things. It's more just like metal clapping on metal and grinding and ah. Maybe it's a sensory thing for me too. It's just like it's too much. But totally. Hopefully it's a little bit dampened for the client. Yeah. Okay. So here's another question. How do you deal with a client who has become too dependent on the therapy and the therapist? For example, reaching out frequently between sessions and not wanting to end therapy. Great question. We I have an episode have... about dependency. Yeah. If, yeah. if for this person, if they want to listen to that, but we have lots of thoughts about it. If being reaching out, like clients reaching out a ton between sessions used to phase me so much and make me feel so anxious. And now that I just feel really firm in my policies of like, I don't respond to emails between 4 p.m. on Friday and 8 a.m. on Monday or whatever. Um, which I write into my consent paperwork and is very clear to clients, I feel a thousand times less stressed about it. This is part of the reason why I'll never go back to texting with clients. I would never give them my personal number ever again. Those are mistakes I've made. Um, When it comes to client contact, it's all going to be through a phone that is exclusively used for clients um, or email. And I 
even when there is risk of suicide, um, something that I've started writing into my paperwork is that I'm not a crisis interventionist. And so I'm happy to send along resources, but I'm not going to respond to emails outside of those hours. Uh, even if they are really, I often won't even check my work email for the entirety of a weekend. Good for you. So for me, it's about policies. Hmm. I use my regular phone just for those who are listening. It's not, it's not um, an all or nothing thing. It's, you know, you have to find what works for you, but um, I think that that can be a very good boundary to have, like not checking emails over the weekend. Another thing for me, when I think about clients who become quote unquote, too dependent on therapy, I feel like I'm their only support person. And so maybe it's not crisis as much as it's like, you're the only person I talk to. Which lots or of clients will you're say. You're the only person who understands, yes, who understands yes, yes, me. Yes, yes, yes. And so I want to spend as much time as I can with you because I feel lonely. Maybe they don't say that, but there is this, this feeling that you get that you're their only support person. So mm-hmm. in that case, it becomes more of a process conversation for sure, holding your boundaries, including emotionally, like you can't solve this person's um, like the lack of connection that they have in their life, you can show up for them as best you can in the times that you are showing up for them. And that being said, how might I, I might have a conversation about how it's hard, right? It's hard that they want more therapy because it feels like the only place that they have a chance to talk to somebody like, oh, I actually don't hear my own voice for the yeah. for the rest of the week except for when I come here. Right. And so then it might be a problem solving thing about how we can you know, how can we get you uh in connection with other people because it's also not sustainable financially. I mean, no. I won't see anyone more than once a week. Me neither. I, I know that say some that. therapists would. Yeah, and see I don't see that more than once a week. No big deal. I have space in my schedule for sure. I'm well, yeah. I can see them. And again, I don't want to say that that's wrong thing to do. I just would never do it. It feels like too yeah. often to me. And I, I feel like it feeds into this person seeing therapy as, you know, the the proverbial stool that this is one leg. Yes. If you pull it out, then the stool falls over. And we want people to go to therapy as support, but we don't want to be the thing that's holding them up. So how do we work on a longer term basis to make sure that they have other supports? I love that. Two things come up for me is that, yeah, I've done a lot of work with these clients who are reaching out a lot around um, like what has helped you get through things in the past because we need to be building some coping that isn't this, right? And then, um, oh, I, I have said to clients before, you can send me as many emails as you want between our sessions. I'm not going to respond to them, but we can talk about them the next time I see you. And that has also worked for a lot of clients where it's like they just in the moment really want to like write it down and send it. And they're okay with not getting a response immediately because that's I front loaded. It's really valuable to not avoid these hard conversations. The longer we go of a client Mm. doing something that is pushing our boundary, the harder that conversation is going to be. So I would say the first time that you're getting people sending you five emails between sessions, gently 
in a non-shame inducing way saying, I noticed this happening. Tell me about what was going on for you. Let me tell you how I work. Let's come up with a plan together. That's going to work for both of us. This policy is the one that I adhere to. So I won't be responding or whatever. These are the types of conversations that feel really scary and daunting, but we have to have the conversation with our client in order to protect them down the road. Protect them, protect our energy. I find in the beginning when my boundaries were more lax or inconsistent, Mm -hmm. I was too afraid to set them. It felt like like it was too late to set them, that I just felt afraid, like anxious, like you're saying, anxious, overwhelmed. I don't know. Like it feels like it's gone on for too long. I can't have the conversation now. It took, it would take a lot of discomfort on both of our parts to have that conversation. But now, the longer it goes, yeah, so much worse. Nip that in the bud. I think if if you're somebody who just says in the beginning, I don't like you're saying that you're open to having clients email you between sessions, just without the expectation that you will respond. I wouldn't want that. I don't want long emails in my inbox. That's that would be very stressful for me. So if that came up from a client, I would say, okay. I really appreciate that you're thinking between sessions. I think that that's really valuable in getting, doing the work that you want to do. And can you write it down on your own and then bring it to the session? And then we can talk about what came up between sessions. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of not wanting to end therapy, that's a really interesting one Um, because I, I have had clients who kind of outright refuse to be referred, right? Um, They maybe hit a level of care that is beyond what I can offer, um, this actually came up in a in a um, clinical uh, like group supervision I was a part of recently with someone saying like that my client was here this is what was going on and now this thing over here happened it's now totally outside of my scope but I can't just break up with this client and so it is really hard when a client does not want to be referred and you're either outside of your scope or you feel like the work you're doing isn't working or they're not respecting your policies you've said to them, hey, you can't email me between sessions this much and they're still doing it. And so it becomes clear that they're not respecting the kind of contract the two of you have agreed to. There's something that's coming up for me that I'm curious what you think, Allison, because I Mm. feel like from past conversations, you might have a reaction to this. This is outside of my scope. Let's get you with somebody who will support you better. And then with other folks, I might say something like, this is the limitation. I can't do that work. I can do this type of work. Yes. And so we can try what it's like to leave that part off the table. And maybe maybe it is time for you to go see another therapist for that. But I'm more open. I present it as more like options to that person. Totally. And I know that you've said in the past that you think that it's, you know, that we need to treat each client the same. We have to at least be trying to, right? The second that we hear ourselves do it, giving exceptions for things, I think then it beca- it just becomes such a slippery slope. So I think we always try to, but then I think about how off-putting dependency can feel too and how mm. much um, how much easier it is to say to a client who is just a lot right now, it's so much easier to want to refer that person out than a person who is right. not disrespecting your boundaries, doesn't, isn't this all or this really intensity? I mean, I don't want to, I want to talk about clients in a human way, but the intensity of it, or you can feel their need for you. I don't want to do that versus the client who's like outside your scope, but they're really respectful or, you know, you have a really mm-hmm. good relationship with them, of course. But I do think we want to be really thoughtful and and make sure that we're saying I'm referring this person because I can't do this work, not I'm referring this person because 
I'm sick of them. But think about who do we label as too dependent? Like we don't tend to label people that we really like. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's very right? interesting. So like I you're too that, much. This is fine. Because it's yeah. kind of saying you're too much. It's a hundred percent saying you're too I much. I think yes. it, there's something to think mm-hmm. about there because I those folks that I'm going to be labeling as too dependent are people that, like you said, are coming on strong and I don't like I, it. I, don't, I can't. Yeah. It doesn't match up with how I want to show up for them yeah. mm-hmm. versus people who desperately need me, want me. And it feels like something that's within my interesting you know yeah, my capacity. within my capacity or even it touches on some kind of energy that i get from it like oh i like being this person who shows who is their one support person that they show up every week yeah. i'm not saying that this is something that i'm currently doing but no, i can no. see mm. how that can come up for people and how this it is- has come up for me in the past yeah sure and i think that this is why it's so valuable especially if you're early in your practice to think about what you want your policies to look like and then try to adhere to them as often as possible with as many clients um, so that you are acting ethically, which is tricky. Well, maybe, maybe. How would you like to close? I don't know. That's a great question. We want to thank everyone who joined us today. We've never done anything like this. Um, I guess we haven't, Oh, we haven't talked before about how um, on the podcast, I don't think that I'm moving back to BC. So we're hoping to be able to do these types of things, but in person, mm. uh, hopefully over the next in 2024, because we'll actually be physically together and we won't have to record virtually as much anymore, which will be really exciting. Mm. Oh, you think you'll come by for some physical? Recording? Yeah, I assume so. Nice. Just so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks Good for being here, everybody. And then, um, yeah, if you have any further thoughts, you can email us at connect at edgeofthecouch.com. You can DM us on Instagram at edge of the couch pod. You can also join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash edge of the couch. Yep. Thanks so much, everyone. Hi, this is Katie from the Jane team. Here at Jane, we know how much trust you place in your practice management software, not only to keep your practice running smoothly, but also to show up for you every day. Our team values your trust and works hard to earn it. With Jane, you can rely on our unlimited customer support, as well as thorough onboarding that includes an account setup consultation and a free data import. Most importantly, with 99.99% software reliability, Jane is always accessible and ready to take on the day with you. If you're ready to get started, head to jane.app forward slash start to sign up for a new account. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at connect at edgeofthecouch.com to tell us what you think, ask a question, or let us know what type of episode you'd love to hear. You can even send us a voice note for us to play in a future episode. You can support us by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, sharing the show with a friend, or supporting us on Patreon. Join us next time at The Edge of the Couch. The Edge of the Couch.